I'll tell you what gets me through all these elections is uh, before any election, Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. During the election, Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And after any election, nothing changes. Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And uh, Terry, this is a, this is a, I'm reporting for duty. What about you, my friend? I'm reporting to duty. And Jess, you know what's amazing? You and I are on the same page because you know what it is, Jess? It's not our personalities. It's not the way you part your hair and I don't even have hair to part. It's because of our love for Jesus Christ and his bride, the Amen, church, brother. that unites us and it unites all of our listeners. Yeah, don't forget, remember this, uh, that uh, God has put us into this time, this age, for a specific reason. Yes, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah all happening all over again. Yeah. I get that. But you know what? God's given us opportunities to proclaim Jesus to a fallen world. And that's how I see it, and that's how we're going to deal with it. Yes, today, you man, you got a, a heck of a person to, di- to be an interview, Dr. Peter Kuzwesnuski. He's got a new book called, uh, here's his book, one, The Once and Future Roman Rite. Uh, one of our priests here read the book. I haven't read it, but I'm, I'm going to read it. But, you know, anything on the Mass, I'm always interested because yeah. the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. So it'll be a great interview. We also have a great quote from a friend of Bishop Sheen's on the train that I think is very apropos for uh, an ele- a day after an election and much, much more. Uh, Jess, you know, to me, the good news of Jesus Christ every day, if I don't have that every day, uh, people will t- text me, I'm depressed. Don't be depressed, okay? Fall in love with Christ, and no matter what takes place, it's like it's like a friend of mine, Father Zechariah Butro, said when his brother was being murdered by an Islamic terrorist right in front of him. He was only 14 years old, his father was, was a layman, and uh, the terrorist went to uh, say to F- Father Zechariah as a 14-year-old boy after he picked up his brother's Bible that fell after they murdered him, you want to be next? And Father Zechariah at age 14 said, you can't send me anywhere that God isn't. And Jess, you know what I tell the world, the That's devil right. in the I flesh? Did, yeah. You yeah. can't send me anywhere that God isn't. So I'm, I'm, you know what, I'm living in the presence of God, and I'm going to continue to share the good news in season and out. Terry, there's a good prayer out there, the divine mercy, that people should be praying yeah. throughout the day just to fight depression, yeah, stress, anxiety. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, you, uh, uh, eternal God in whom mercy is endless and the treasure of compassion is inexhaustible. Look kindly upon us and increase your mercy in us that in difficult moments we might not despair exactly. nor become despondent, mm. but with great confidence submit ourselves to your holy will which is love and mercy itself. Say that prayer often throughout the day. Mm. It's the it's the concluding prayer of the divine mercy. It says it all there. It just yeah. says a mouthful. I mean, uh, you know, because there are going to be difficult moments in life. Oh. There are going to be, uh, you know, stressful moments. Mm-hmm. It says, but that we may not despair nor, dis- nor become despondent but with great confidence, submit ourselves to your holy will, which is love and mercy itself. Or what about the saint? I think the saint, one of the Saint Therese's did this prayer, Terry. Mm-hmm. I forget which one. I think of the little flower. In happy moments, oh. praise God. Yeah. In difficult moments, seek God. Mm-hmm. In quiet moments, worship God. That's beautiful. In painful moments, like now, yep. trust God. In every moment, thank God. I love it. 
Beautiful, beautiful. Terry, I do want to make uh, just a comment about yesterday's elections across yes. the country. Bishop Strickland put out a tweet. Yeah. He said, yeah, uh, there, there, is, there was a red sweep. The red sweep, uh, he says, uh, he, he says uh, the red sweep is, yeah, you're right. He's responding to Jen Psaki, Bishop Strickland. He says, you're right, Mrs. Psaki. Instead, the red waves are the blood of innocent unborn children. Wow. Your friends are wow. unleashing across our land. What a great Tragic, line. deeply tragic for us all. Jen Psaki used to work for the White House. She's now been replaced. You know, I think she works from uh, one the of the liberal. What, yeah, one of the ABC uh, alphabet channels. Right. Yeah, I think MSNBC. She's an anchor there. Yep. And now they replaced her with a, a younger female black lesbian. That's uh, I forget her name. But yeah, Bishop Strickland. Uh, responded to Jen Psaki because apparently she said something, you know, making basically making light of, hey, where's the red wave? Where's the red wave? It didn't happen. So Bishop Strickland said, you're right, Mrs. Psaki. Instead, the red waves are the blood of innocent unborn children. Your friends are unleashing across our land. Tragic, deeply, deeply tragic for us all. That Because she, t- she wrote, Jen Psaki put on, on Twitter, this night is not turning out exactly like the red waivers predicted so far. Yeah. My comment on that, Terry, is this. There's three possibilities. Number one, and we won't know for a while, uh, maybe there, w- there has been fraud like okay. there was two years ago. It, sure. That's possible. That's why there was not a red wave. Number two, uh, I think number two is a, a bigger possibility. I think there's just a moral decline in our country, Terry. Mm-hmm. I think there's a decline in the character of our country as a nation. I, I think we're living in many Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, I mean, see, I don't see that often because I run Catholic circles. Everybody around me is Catholic. But when I step out into Walmart and Target, just into the normal public square, most people don't think like I do with my friends. Most people aren't wearing a crucifix around their neck. And so I think we I think admittedly, we do live now in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the third thing that I would say also is as to why this probably happened if uh, if if the left swept the elections last night or, or held their power. It's because if you look at all the major cities, what do we have in all the major cities? We have a bunch of colleges and universities that are there. Well, guess what, Terry? The majority of college and university students vote for the Democrats, like three out of four college kids. That's 75%. They vote for the party of the woke party of of the Democrat, the woke party of the left. And so... We're talking about hundreds of thousands of votes right there. I mean, yeah. just here in Phoenix, Arizona, ASU, it has 70,000 students. So if three out of four vote for the Democrats, the, the, the woke Democrats, well, that's right off the top. There's, that's 52,000 students that they got. Every city has m- several colleges and universities there. And most of those young malformed Marxist kids woke vote for the woke Democrat Party. That's probably another reason why there wasn't a red sweep. That's my take. Well, you know, remember we talked about uh, the Generation Z and how they're all yes. on drugs. Yeah. What do you think they're going to be voting for? Okay, Santa Claus. Give me yeah. more money. Yeah. Hey, Jess, let's just uh, let's get to the, the either the gospel or the first reading of the Mass and then talk about the dedication of the Lateran Basilica of today's November 9th. Yeah, today, today's gospel. Uh, John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. Since the Passover of the Jews was near, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple area Mm -hmm. those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, as well as the money changers seated there. 
He made a whip out of cords and drove them all out of the temple area. I would just maintain that Jesus didn't make the whip for decoration. Whips, whips were made to be used. It says, uh, uh, with the sheep and oxen and spill the coins of the money changers and overturn their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, take these out of here and stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples recall the words of scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. That's exactly what we need in the Catholic church. We need zeal. Amen. Uh, Fulton Sheen says that the left or, or the, the, the children of, 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 of Satan, they have zeal and the children of God have lost their zeal. Yep. The, the gospel says at this, the Jews answered and said to him, what sign can you show for? Can you show for us doing this? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and, I, and you will raise it up in three days. Mm-hmm. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Yep. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they came to believe the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken to them. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So the cleansing of the temple, it's, it's recorded in all four gospels. But there's one difference among them that John places. He says this happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That's the difference. The other, the other Gospels, it doesn't mention that. And so what we see here is that Jesus Christ may have cleansed the temple twice. It's possible. In fact, some have dated the episode in, in, in John's Gospel around 27 or 28 AD, uh, calculating 46 years from the time of Herod the Great, when he began renovating the temple in 19 or 20 BC, uh, the temple of Jerusalem was divided into several courts. You had the outermost court open to Gentile pilgrims. It was used for selling sacrificial animals and exchanging foreign currency for the appropriate coins needed to pay the annual temple tax. Jesus was angry because the merchants are robbing Israel through inflated taxes and inflated rates of exchange and robbing the Gentiles of the opportunity to worship and pray. Sounds like our country right now, exactly. Jared, with the inflation. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Hey, let's uh, let's just uh, bring the uh, Bishop Sheen in real quick before we full Sheen ahead. And this is uh, St. Bruno is with Bishop Sheen on that train. And St. Bruno said this, and this is appropriate for our election. While the world changes, the cross stands firm. Mm. Yes, that take I take that to heart. The cross is standing firm, no matter what goes on in the culture. We they can't take our our Lord from us. No, and that's why I keep telling people: be strong, live in the presence of God, continue to fight the good fight. Don't give up. Say your prayers. Make reparation for the sacrileges that are going on in the country. Mm-hmm. And just the quick note: Bishop Strickland and I will be going another hour later this afternoon, and I will bring up that tweet, and he's going to give a good explanation on that one. But when we come back, we have Doctor Peter Kuzminski, an interview of his book. It's called "The Once and the Future Roman Rite Will Take Place" here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, the Terry and Jesse Show. Yes, we're still too blessed to be stressed. We're still too anointed to be disappointed. And if hope was money, both of us would be billionaires. Because our hope is in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, welcome to the Terry and Jesse Show, my friend. 
Thank you so much, Jesse. It's good to be back. <laughs> God I'm, love you. I, Terry says he goes way back with you. Oh, well, uh, you know what, doctor? I don't know if you're, what year did you graduate from TAC? 1994. Okay. Well, if you remember going to conferences, I can recall meeting you. I'm the bald headed old man. And I remember meeting you. You were a very astute student. And I just recall that. And then when I saw you later, years later, I said, I can't believe it. There he is. So anyhow, we go back. I've been in Southern California all my life. And I mean, the John Blewitts, does that name ring a bell to you? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So TAC is a great school. And I'm just glad that you're swinging the bat for Jesus, especially about your book. I just want to set the stage and say one thing. Monsignor Harris, a Vatican diplomat, he's retired. He read your book before I got a copy of it, okay? And he is really, really a sharp, he speaks 12 languages, and he's very cautious about a lot of things. I'm just saying when he reads things, let's just say he's, well, when Scott Hahn was young, he used to critique Scott Hahn all the time on his theology. So when he read your book and he said, Good book, Terry. I like it. I thought, oh, gosh, Monsignor, it must be really good. I can't wait to read it. So I give you that endorsement. Now, you probably have other endorsements, but a, a small Monsignor from Southern California read your book, and uh, he thought it was fantastic. So I'm just glad that we're going to ask you these questions on why you wrote the book. First of all, what, why did you write the book, Doc? Yeah, well, what's the name of the book, and then why did you write it? Yeah, Isn't it Once in Future the Roman Rite Will Take Place? Is that the title? So yeah, so it, it's it's called the the once and future Roman right. Yeah. Oops, can I uh, get this here? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the once and future Roman right, returning to the traditional Latin liturgy after seventy years of exile. That's mm. that's the whole <clears throat> name of the book, um, with with tan books. Yeah, in, great uh, publisher. Yeah. And why did you write the book? You know, um, a lot of a lot of reasons, really. I mean, as you know, I've I I, I write regularly about the liturgy. I've been doing this yeah. for years. Yes. But um, but I I, re I, re I regard this book as the kind of uh, point of arrival, the summation of my thinking on certain aspects of of the liturgy, in particular, the problem of of the rupture, the rupture that occurred um, in the 1960s between the entire preceding liturgical tradition of the church and what was what was uh, put into effect by Paul VI. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that rupture, the nature of it, the consequences um, is, is very much at the center of this book, as well as a, an urgent plea to restore the tradition that was lost. Got it. Dr. Peter, some people talk, you know, I, I read some people, they'll say, well, there, there was abuses in the Latin mass as well. And, uh, you know, they'll say some people prayed it too fast. You couldn't, you, you know, they just zip through in 20 minutes. But but when I say if there was abuses in the Latin Mass, and that's it was way before my time. I was born in 1961, so I probably caught the tail end of it. Uh, there was no, uh, I, I you can't compare if there were abuses in the Latin Mass before to the abuses that you see today in the Novus Ordo Mass. I mean, you can't. I mean, I've seen again uh, in Mexico a priest wearing a wrestler's mask during Mass. I've seen a, yeah. in, Ire in Ireland an Irish priest riding a scooter up the aisle for the procession. I, in another place, I saw a priest flying the Blessed Sacrament in a drone to the altar. A, a witch doctor participated in a synodal mass at the Cathedral of San Bernardino mm -hmm. with the bishop present. Uh, an Italian priest uses an inflatable mattress as an altar during Mass in the Sea. So when somebody says, oh, there was abuses in the Latin Mass, I'll say... 
Well, that was before my time, but you can't compare it to the abuses that I see now in the Novus Ordo Mass. Yes. Well, I mean, that, that there's there's a lot packed into the point that you're making there. Um, the, the simplest way of, 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 of addressing it is to say that the old Latin Mass was hedged about with a thick hedge of rubrics. There were very precise requirements that had to be followed. And it's true that if you had a lazy priest or maybe a priest who had lost his faith or whatever, he could he could certainly rush through something. But the liturgy itself was was unified, was tightly controlled, was coherent. It had very careful rubrics and all of the good priests and even a lot of mediocre priests would have celebrated the mass reverently and beautifully. And we know that too, because we have plenty of stories and records and photos and so forth and films of beautifully reverently celebrated traditional masses. Um, so, but th there's a deeper problem, which is that in the Novus Ordo itself, for the first time, you have what I call optionitis. Yeah. In other words, the priest can choose to do this or that or the other thing. He can say something in his own words. The missile says, use these or similar words. You know, it, it has opportunities for multiple mini homilies throughout. And all of this is part of the liturgical reform. It's not an abuse. So in a way that the, the priests are, are almost encouraged to make of the liturgy their own thing, right? Um, and that, of course, is is heavily underlined or augmented by the the versus populum stance. You know, the priest facing the yeah. people no, no. rather than the priest facing eastwards with the people. Well you, said. You, yeah, you know, I, I just when you said that, uh, Doctor Kuzneski, it reminds me of uh, the priest in Chicago and Saint Sabina Parish. I forget his name. Flager. But, uh, Flager. Yeah, yep. Flager. He just got reprimanded. But go ahead. Y yeah. When you see again, when you see his liturgies. It looks like a rock concert, and he's definitely at the center of it. In fact, I saw this one video where he stood on top of the altar with his feet, and I forget what he was shouting as music was playing, but again, it's all about him. It's not about Christ. Uh, mm -hmm. As bad as any abuse may have been in the Latin Mass, you know, pre-1965, I don't think any I don't think any priest in the TLM has ever stood on top of the altar and started yelling, you know, uh, like mm -hmm. he's in a rock concert. Yes, I mean, what would have been necessary in the 1960s when Western culture, Western civilization was already beginning to unravel is for the church to double down yes. on the rubrics, to have said, no, we're going to be stricter than ever. Mm -hmm. If you do anything out of these lines, you're you're expelled, whatever. So in other words, when, when society is, is, is going haywire, the solution is not to say, hey, everybody, now we're going to have a lot more freedom. And you get to choose lots more things to do and you can inculturate, you know, to your wildest imagination. No, of course, that doesn't make any sense. And that, therefore, the, the decline in society and the decline in the church are parallel to each other. It's because the church has allowed herself to follow the same path of, uh, of, a, of, a, of an unhealthy freedom and spirit of, of liberation that we're seeing all these problems right now. Dr. Peter. I have to say amen to what you're saying. I have to ask you a question regarding the horizontalism versus the verticalism of our faith. It seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what you just said tells me that uh, seems like we have forgotten the vertical, or I should say yeah, the vertical uh, aspect of going to God, and we've put so much man into the liturgy 
that mm. we forgot who we're worshiping. And now, if I'm if I'm giving an exaggeration, tell me. But it sure appears people don't get who we're worshiping when we go to mass today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think it's I think this language of vertical and horizontal yeah. is very is a very helpful way mm-hmm. of putting the problem. The reason we go to church for public worship, for yes. the liturgy, is to adore and supplicate and praise and thank Almighty God. Amen. The focus. Um, and, and so what actually binds us together as a Catholic body, as the mystical body of Christ, is not being chummy with each other. Exactly. I mean, we can do that after Mass in the coffee hour. Right. I mean, yes. that's is there. We can go out bowling together. We can have a book club. You know, we can have brunch together. I mean, there, there are millions of ways that Catholics can be sociable to each other, but not during the mass, not during the holy sacrifice, not during the adoration of God. Amen. We have to put first things first and second things second. Well said. Yeah. So you claim that tradition is normative for the church and for everyone in the church, including po- the Pope. Why do you say this? Right. OK, so. <clears throat> Basically, the attitude that you get when you study church history, when you look at at the Old Testament, the New Testament, the church fathers, the doctors of the church from the Middle Ages, all the saints down to the down to the modern times, you find this insistence on holding fast to what has been handed down. Um, and 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 so, actually, the best way of understanding the history of the liturgy is to see that that. God gave the Israelites certain forms of worship, which they jealously guarded. And then in the early church, Christ himself, the son of God become man. He took up those forms. He didn't despise them. He didn't chuck them out. He took them up, embraced them and, and transformed them into the new covenant. And this new covenant took with it all of the great things of the old covenant and added something which was even more special, namely the body and blood of Christ and the grace of Christ and the other sacraments. And then throughout all of the ages, the church kept adorning and enhancing and augmenting this worship, right? Step by step, prayer by prayer, chant by chant, beautiful church by beautiful church. There's always this kind of expansion, like like an oak tree growing from an acorn, right? And so the attitude that you meet with throughout the whole of church history is one of deep love and respect and gratitude and humble receptivity towards tradition, towards what has been handed down. <clears throat> so, of course, tradition just means what has been handed down, you know, <clears throat> uh, the word itself. And so it's only in the 20th century uh, and really after the middle of the 20th century, after World War II, that you get this revolutionary mentality or attitude that we modern people somehow we know so much more or we're so much more sophisticated now that we can stand in judgment over that whole tradition over that whole heritage and we can pick and choose whatever we wish whatever we think is best whatever suits us whatever we like and we can discard whatever doesn't suit us or doesn't fit with our ideas anymore and that that is a that is a revolutionary attitude and change in the way that people approached the liturgy in particular. But you can see this in morality, in doctrine, you can see it in all sorts of areas. And so my my point about, about the Pope is that even the Pope is a member of the body of Christ who has an obligation to receive gratefully and humbly what has been handed down from, from the past uh, and from our heritage. Uh, and so, yes, he has uh, supreme jurisdiction over the church, but that's not an absolute monarchy. 
the Pope's will and wishes and whims are not law, right? right? He, he, in fact, he has the most solemn obligations to preserve and defend the tradition. And I would add to confirm us in our faith. Doc, when, when you, before we take the break, I want to tease everybody. We're going to talk about this term organic development in the liturgy. And in your book, you talk about that. But I, I will say this, that as you were talking about the, the liturgy and, and World War II, it, it appears to me, I have a line that I say, who's influencing who? The world influencing the church or the church influencing the world? And it seems to me, the last, say, 60 years, 70 years, the world has infected the church more than the church affected the world. So that's my take. When we come back, Doc, you can correct me on that, too. I'm more than happy to be corrected. Folks, you're listening to the Terry and Jesse Show. We're talking about a great book, The Once and Future Roman Rite Will Take Place. It's Tan Books, who's the publisher. Dr. Peter Kazwaznowski is the author. Get the book, because the Mass is the source and summit of the Christian faith. Stay with us, family. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. We got Dr. Peter Kwasniewski here. You know, I, I look at uh, <laughs> Dr. Peter's books on the Latin Mass. He's What Carl Keating was doing 30 years ago yeah. for Catholic answers, you know, the, the apologetics for uh, Catholics and Protestants, Dr. Peter seems to be the apologist now for the, the Latin mass and boy, oh boy, uh, are you, are you're putting out some incredible information there and you're feeding the body of Christ because these are answers that people have wanted for such a long time. And all of a sudden here you come and you're, and you're giving these very thoughtful answers for questions that we've had in our hearts for a long time. We all want to thank you for that. But again, uh, the question is, Let's talk about organic development in, in the liturgy. What does this mean? Because I know Pope Benedict, he 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 used to always talk about this continuity that there has to be. Vatican II must be maintained in continuity. That means also sacrosanctum concilium with anything before 1965. So, do we see continuity in the Novus Ordo Missae? Yes. Yes. Um, so Sacrosanctum Concilium is a huge topic unto itself, but I'll say very briefly that it was drafted by a group of people who were fairly, let's say they were, they were some of them were moderates who wanted to see the continuity, and some of the drafters of it were radicals who wanted to see a massive overhaul. And so they they drafted the document very cleverly so that it would say conservative sounding things that most of the bishops would nod about and say, okay, yes, I can vote for that. But then it left open all kinds of loopholes. Uh, You know, the bishops conference will decide X, Y, and Z. And, you know, they they left a lot to be basically they punted on all kinds of things um, on the assumption that the bishops would, you know, want to get on with their work and, and sure we can leave some things to be decided later on, not realizing what that was going to look like, right. Um, that it was going to be quite, quite such an astonishing uh, deviation from what they had agreed on. If you read the debates or the discussions at the second Vatican council on the liturgy, this would have been 
uh, in the fall of 1962. It was the mm -hmm. first subject they talked about. Right. Um, the speeches show that for the most part, the bishops were thinking very conservatively. Um, I would say nine out of 10 bishops were thinking that we're going to keep the Tridentine Mass, as some people call it. It's actually older, much older than the Council of Trent, but <clears throat> but it was codified by Pius V in 1570 after Trent. So sometimes people call it the Tridentine Missal. Um, the view was that we were going to keep this Roman rite, but translate some parts of it, just some, into the vernacular. We were going to keep the Gregorian chant. There was nothing said about turning the priest around towards the people. Um, you know, the, the, the assumption was fundamental continuity. Okay. And we have many testimonies of bishops uh, after the council who said, oh, what, what happened in 1969 with the Noah's Order was not at all what any of us were talking about. And, and in fact, Ratzinger said that very specifically in 1976 mm -hmm. to a man named Wolfgang Waldstein. It's, you can find this text online. It's a, it's a very important text. He says, I was at the council. I have reread all of the discussions. I know exactly what was said and what was not said. And what came out is not what any of us were talking about. Okay. Um, <clears throat> why is that? Why do I say that? Why can we say that? Because as I was saying a little bit earlier, in the history of the liturgy, what you see is gradual growth. You see organic growth. In other words, growth that takes place slowly uh, and always in a direction of augmentation, meaning the church always enhances her liturgy. She doesn't ever sort of radically chop it down, you know, uh, like, like a tree that's just been hacked away to the roots, you know, that never happens. And so once the church is praying in a certain way, the later generations just keep praying in the same way, you know, and let's say the Gregorian chant, most of the Gregorian chant was finished by the year 1000. Uh, other chants were written in the hundred, in the centuries after that, by the time you got to the council of Trent, the whole musical setting of the mass was complete. It was complete, totally complete. Uh, and, and that is something that we all, you know, once you get to know it, you can see why it's so beloved. And so uh, the, the chant is wonderful. You can't surpass it. It's perfect liturgical music, you know, for all kinds of reasons. Um, and that's why the Second Vatican Council said that Gregorian chant shall have chief place in the liturgy, right? The chief place. Uh, principem locum is the expression in Latin. Dr. Peter, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Father Abbot Boniface Lutke. He was a yes. paritas. I met him. I interviewed him back in 1994 for three hours, asking oh. lots of questions regarding the liturgy. And he, <laughs> I'm just saying he, he worked with Bunini before, during, and after the council. And he said the fathers would be turning in their graves if they knew what happened after the council. So I only wanted to make that point because that's you're not the only one saying that. He was yeah. there during, before, during, and after the council, and he was appalled at what happened. So I just wanted to make that point. Oh, sure. And I mean, you know, uh, Cardinal Stickler yes, was course. a member of the uh, Commission on the Liturgy at Vatican II. He yeah. says the same, same thing. thing. Yeah. Uh, Ferdinand Antonelli mm -hmm. uh, was a member of the Commission. He said the same thing. Yep. Uh, Louis Bouillet, yep. Louis Bouillet, very famous French theologian, oh, yeah. had yeah. lots of Lots of terrible ideas, which he later, I think, repented of to some extent. Um, but Louis Bouillet said the same thing. He said Bunini was a man, was a dishonest player. Yep. And 
you and you probably know, I'm sure that all of your viewers know Mass of the Ages. Of course. Right? This, this, you know, episode two. Yes. Which which just goes into this quite, you know. Oh, in, big time. In, Everybody should see that if they haven't seen that. All right. Yes. Jess, next question. So, yeah. So uh, did the liturgical reform basically disagree with the idea that the liturgy organically develops? Yes, I think you can absolutely say that. Um, one of the things I do in my book, I have a chapter um, called uh, <clears throat> Growth or Corruption, Catholic versus Protestant Modernist <laughs> Models. Um, and what I do in that chapter is I show that the common narrative to Protestants and to liturgical reformers like Bunini is that the church pretty early on went off the rails when it comes to the right way of worshiping God. So even by the time you get to the end of the first millennium, and certainly by the Middle Ages, the, the beginning of the second millennium, the Catholic Church's worship is messed up. It's gone wrong. It's gone rotten. Uh, you know, the, it's it's clericocentric. They say it's centered on the priest. It ditches the people. They have nothing to do but pray the rosary. Um, uh, they say, you know, um, that the, the the body is no longer responding and singing as they should be. Um, you know, they say that uh, the language that people are cut off from the worship because it's a, a foreign language, you know, Latin, that, that they don't speak anymore. You know, and so they make all these, basically the Protestants say the Catholic Church went off the rails. Um, it, went off, it went away from scripture and the purity of the gospel. And the liturgical reformers have a similar kind of idea. The Catholic mm. Church's worship was corrupted in the Middle Ages. Wow. And and so the reform the the reformers the Protestant reformers and the liturgical reformers both saw themselves as restoring the the Christianity to its pristine mm. ancient form right so a Lutheran or a Calvinist might say we're just going back to the original gospel as you had it at the time of the apostles that's what they claim yeah. and similarly the liturgical reformers would say I mean they wouldn't say we're going back to the time of the apostles. But they would say, we're going back to the way things were in the early church. They always say that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, but before there was all this extravagance of yeah. architecture and music and ritual and yeah. ceremonial and vestments. So that's why we want like a simple wooden cup and we want a simple table. Oh. And you know, we, like they, so they have these ideas about even about early church worship that end up being incorrect when you examine them because the early church worship wasn't like that. It wasn't like some kind of 1970s movie about St. Francis of Assisi. I mean, <laughs> that wasn't the way it was, but that. that's, that's how they often imagined these things. You know, the early Christians were almost like proto hippies, you know, as far as, as far as they were concerned. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so there is this, this striking and disturbing parallel between Protestantism and the liturgical reform. And you can see in, that in all kinds of details. In other words, they, they both use the same arguments against against the, the Latin Mass. Huh. The, the, the yes, Novus Ordo, yeah, the Novus exactly. Ordo defenders and the Protestants use the, the same arguments against the Latin Mass. That's what you're saying, right? Right, precisely. Yeah, yeah. You also say that there that there are prominent identifying traits of the Roman Rite and all traditional rites that are partially or totally absent from the Novus Ordo. What are these traits? And why does this matter? Yes, um, that is uh, that's that's a that's a crucial topic um, because we're what we're dealing with here is not just um, not just deviations from the Roman tradition, which would be bad enough, <clears throat> but deviations from all preceding liturgical traditions. 
East and West, right? So Byzantine or Roman or uh, Ambrosian or Mozarabic or Gallican or any any of these different uh, traditions that you wish to look at. So what are some of these things? Well, um, one of them we've mentioned already, ad orientem, the eastward orientation of, of the, the priest and the ministers in the sanctuary. Um, we have a, a fixed Eucharistic prayer. All of the traditional rites specify which Eucharistic prayer is to be used on a given day. In the Roman tradition, it's just one, the Roman canon. That's the only one that was ever used. Okay. Um, uh, we have uh, an offertory, an elaborate offertory ceremony that sets apart the bread and the wine for their sacrificial purpose. Um, this is something, again, you find in Eastern and Western liturgies. Uh, you find the utmost veneration for the Blessed Sacrament down to every last detail. All of the traditional liturgies are Eucharistico-centric, if, if I can put it that way. Um, the traditional liturgies are hierarchically structured. You have priest, deacon, subdeacon, acolytes, all these different positions. They occupy a sacred hierarchy, and the laity are excluded from that. Only the ministers can be in the sanctuary. The laity have to be in the nave. There's no interpenetration between these two things. And certainly there are no women uh, performing ministerial functions. Um, <clears throat> in traditional liturgies, you have uh, the church architecture is set up in a very definite way. The high altar or some kind of, of, of altar of focus, uh, the sanctuary, sometimes an iconostasis or a barrier, uh, and then the nave of the church, and then the atrium or the foyer of the church. These all have symbolic meanings. Dr. Peter, let me jump in because we got to take a quick oh. break. We want to continue sure. talking about your great book, The Once and Future Roman Rite, will take place. Can books get it, my friends? We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. We're back to Terry and Jesse Show. We got Dr. Peter Kwasniewski. I call him the, the apologist of the Latin mass movement. And boy, oh boy, uh, he has answers at the tip of his tongue. And uh, he has purified my understanding of church history <laughs> like like nobody's business. I want to thank him for that. You were thank answering you. the question, yes. Doctor. We uh, we were asking about the prominent identifying traits exactly. of the Roman rite. Yeah. And so we're almost done with that. I my, with my answer, and the, these are the traits of all traditional liturgical rites, Eastern and Western. So uh, chant. There's a, there's a traditional form of chant by which all of the liturgical texts are chanted, are sung. That's another identifying trait. Um, then you have what I call the elevated discourse. That is that the language of the liturgy is poetic. It's, it's very, it can be very elaborate. It's um, repetitious, right? That these, are, these are traits of the traditional rites. And then finally, all of the things that I've described are required. There are no options. You have to do it all. It's all or nothing, okay? So now, if you just rapidly go back in your mind over all of those traits, you can see that all of them are absent from the Novus Ordo, either absent by design or simply made optional. Uh, and, and as we've seen in the past 50 years, options, when you, when you give people options, they tend to choose either the path of least resistance of or maybe because of ideology, yeah. because of bad seminary formation or whatever, they automatically don't choose the traditional option. 
And then when priests do try to do the traditional options, they get in trouble for it. Exactly. <laughs> so, so it's, it's when you look at all these traits, what you realize is that the Novus Ordo is a unique phenomenon in liturgical history. It's the first liturgy that deviates in all of these ways from the common heritage of East and West. And that's, that's what makes it such a, a problem. It's a real problem. And it doesn't go away by just sugarcoating these questions with a little bit of extra incense and some pretty music. <laughs> that, that doesn't make the problems go away. <laughs> I get it. Dr. Peter, we only have a few minutes left, but I want to get sure. to this question. Pope Paul VI spent a lot of time defending his new mass and attacking its critics. What were his main arguments in favor of it, and did he ever have any regrets? Yeah, so, I mean, his main, unfortunately, mm -hmm. uh, and I can say this because I've studied Paul VI very carefully yeah. in, all, in his writings, um, his main argument boiled down to modern man needs a simplified, straightforward, efficient, abbreviated liturgy. Wow. Because he's busy, I guess, because he's very active, because he's not because he's stupid. I don't know. I'm not really quite sure. Um, you know, and, and so he needs basically he needs like almost like a Barney liturgy, you know, like the like mm -hmm. the, you know, the children's yeah. character. Right. Uh, you know, like a, a liturgy that spoon feeds everything very directly and plainly and simply. And somehow he thought and this to me is shocking that anybody could be so naive. But he thought that if you dumbed everything down like this, that it would somehow the people would just come pouring into the church. You know, oh, finally, I understand what's going on. I can finally see the priest. I can finally hear everything in my own language. Well, guess what happened? The, the, you know, the, 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 the council opened the doors and everybody went out, right? <laughs> everybody left. Um, and the reason is nobody goes to church to be lectured at for an hour by you know a priest telling stories from the pulpit or women who should be school teachers nobody goes to church for that kind of experience we go to church to encounter the transcendent mystery of god right yep. and everything that was in the traditional liturgy communicated that sense to us that we're in the mm. presence of almighty god that we need to get down on our knees in penance in petition in adoration right uh, and I mean, what a privilege it is just to be present in hushed silence at the sacrifice of Calvary. Um, and that's what Catholics had all, all over the world. But for some reason, Paul VI thought, well, this wasn't working. Um, you know, it's true that after World War II, there was a kind of decline. There was beginning to be a decline in church participation. And, and I, I think it's true that Paul VI wanted to stem that tide. But in fact, it got much worse after Vatican II, and it got much worse after liturgical reform. So the solutions were not solutions. They didn't fix anything. And now what do we see, right? Wherever the Latin mass is, it attracts families and young people, and the, all the boys want to be altar servers, and the choirs are full of people singing, volunteers, you know? I mean, this is where the vitality is at, because people can recognize it as authentic, as real, as compelling, right? This is what they, what they experience. Uh, and so, you know, in a supreme irony, right, um, somebody made this, uh, I think, as a meme. They said, in the 1960s, we need to change the liturgy to get the youth to come back. In 2021, we need to abolish the Latin mass because the youth are going to it. <laughs> That's I mean, pretty good. Does this, does this make any sense? No. <laughs> no, common sense ain't that common right now. You know, statistically, um, Doc, let me just jump in and say, statistically, to prove your point, 
from my understanding, before the council, about 75 to 80 percent of Catholics just in America were going to mass on a regular basis. And yes. now I'm hearing 15 to 20 percent of Catholics yes. that are going. I think it's less than that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm probably am I am I too, being too generous, Doc? No, I think that's, let's say, let's be generous, but that's still a huge disparity. Yes, that's my point. Yes. Well, I mean, it's much, it's it's actually the United States right now is the envy yeah. of the rest of the world, <laughs> um, except for Africa. I mean, Africa is a separate, uh, complicated oh, yeah. story, and it's not, um, it, it, we would have to have another interview about Africa. But if you look at Western Europe, oh, yeah. before 1965, yeah. The participation at mass in France was well over 50%, which sounds low to us, but that was pretty good for post-war Europe. Um, and in some parts of France, like the Vendée, it was 95% of Sunday mass attendance. From 1965 to the present has been a continual decline so that now it's like 5% or 2%, depending on where you are in France, right? So the, the Western Europe is a, is a catastrophe. Yeah. Um, and the United States is going in the same direction. Why? Because the church seems to people to be irrelevant. Yeah. And why is the church irrelevant? Yes. Because the church is trying to play catch up with the secular world. Amen. We can never, we can never compete with the secular world on its own terms. Yeah. Our silly church music ditties on Sunday will never sound as good as the ones people can get on YouTube or Spotify or whatever. Very true. Very true. And, 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 and if the church tries to be like the Democratic Party, well, then why not just let the Democratic Party be the Democratic Party, you know? <laughs> and so it, it, the only way the church will ever be will ever be relevant again is when the church shows herself to be preoccupied with eternal and transcendent truth and worship, right? That's what people, that's the, that's the hunger we have in our, in our heart for God, right? That needs to be filled, that nothing on earth can fill. We, the church can't compete with the earth. The church is made for heaven, right? And I, wow. I think the, the fact that there are still these flourishing Latin mass communities shows oh, yeah. that that hunger never goes away. Doc, the way you worship is the way you believe. That's what we're exactly. saying, right? I mean, exactly. let's just be honest that uh, if you have right worship, it also affects your doctrine. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, of course. There's this great phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi. Right. Yep. Which, uh, you know, it, it gets batted around a lot, but it just means the law of prayer, how we pray yep. shows and determines what we believe. Yeah, right? that's it. Uh, that's and so if if uh, so, for example, if we really believe that our Lord Jesus Christ is present, truly, really substantially present in the most holy sacrament of the altar, we will kneel. Exactly. In his presence, kneel before him and receive him on the tongue from the from the the anointed hand of the priest, yep. right? As is right and just, dinum et justum, right? Uh, that's what we'll do. Yep. But if we don't believe, or if we have some kind of Protestant congregational notion of, you know, we're all the body of Christ and that's it, then we're going to just saunter up and take this wafer in our hands and feed it to mm. ourselves because it's just a symbolic action anyway. It's just like a like a meal of togetherness, you know, um, you know, like <laughs> on December 31st. Happy McDonald's, meal at McDonald's, you know? Hey, yeah, Doc, exactly. Who endorses your book? Is like people like Bishop Athanasius Snyder. Who's re, who's endorsing your book? Give me some big names. Cause I think that'll help sell the book. Oh, sure. Well, um, you know, obviously Bishop Snyder, uh, 
Dr. Joseph Shaw, the president of oh, yeah. the International yeah. Univoce Federation. Sure, I know him, sure. Um, Roberto Di Matei, Another great man. A famous wow. Italian historian. Sure, sure. Wow. Uh, Martin Mosebach, yeah. famous German writer. Um, Father John Hunnick, oh, yeah. who I don't know if you know about him. He's a great uh, Anglican ordinariate writer. John Rao, Dr. John Rao yep. of yeah. the Roman yeah. Forum. Yeah. Sure. Um, Stuart Chessman, you know, you Richard Chipola, Father Richard Chipola. Yeah, these are great endorsements. Sure, some good and, names. And again, we only have a couple minutes, but I want people to go online to Tan Books. Don't go to Amazon, please. I always say I don't want anything to do with Amazon. Thank you very much. Go to go to Tan Books, get the book and uh, read it. And it's called "The Once the Future Roman Rite Will Take Place." And uh, Dr. Peters, is there anything else you want to tell our audience about your book that we didn't cover? I know there's much more, but maybe another interview. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, yeah, um, actually, I'll just mention that uh, I heard the good news the other day yeah. that this book is also available as an audio book. Oh, that's good. For, that's quick. For, for, for people who, uh, who have a long commute in the morning or who need to drive across the country, uh, is it's a pretty long book. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, you know, but the audio book is available. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm and, and it's also available as an ebook if people want to use it on their Kindle. Excellent. Tan Books, that's a good publishing house for a lot of great books. Just your thoughts again. Anything else you want to ask? We're going to have to do this again, a part yeah. two, because Terry, there's just so many other questions yeah. I want to ask the good oh, yeah. doctor, but yeah. uh, we're just. Uh, Can we get we you just... back, Doc? Are you okay yeah. with that? Yeah, we'll get you back next. Sure, time. that's fine. All right, we yeah. got you committed now. Okay, <laughs> yeah, and we'll just we'll just continue because there's so many questions. Yeah. Uh, on this topic that we can just ask him, and he's got the answers. Yeah. Uh, and so thank you very much, Doctor Peter, for what you're doing for Holy Mother of the Church. Yep. And I know you're taking a lot of arrows in your back. I know you're, I can see you look like St. Sebastian as, as I'm looking at you. <laughs> uh, you're, you have a lot of arrows in your back from the modernists, but uh, you know what? Right. Uh, you're doing, you're doing a great uh, service to Holy Mother Church. Terry, now, take last thing I want to ask you, Doc, this is a question someone just texted me. I'm at a Novus Ordo parish. Um, what can I do? Uh, you know, the parish is in bad, you know, they're not doing liturgy the way, it, even the rubrics of the mass. Uh, give some advice to people that are, I mean, to go in the, get in their car and drive miles. What are your yes. quick notes? I mean, I, you know, it's, first of all, I want to say I sympathize oh, deeply yeah. with people who are in that situation. I've been in that situation at certain points in my life and it's caused me a lot of pain. Yeah. So what I'm going to say by way of advice, I don't mean it to sound sort of flippant or callous, yeah. but I think it's really important at a certain point, we have to, we have to recognize that we, we need to prioritize the worship of God mm -hmm. and we need to not participate in any kind of liturgical abuse or or really, I mean, there's a lot that we shouldn't participate in because in a way we're lending our support to it if we do that. Yeah. And it's also, we're not being nourished, we're being malnourished. So I think people need to find their closest reverent mass, especially a Latin mass. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they should also be connected to traditional devotions like the rosary and the divine office to breathe here. Amen. You know, Dr. Peter, we, we've got to run, but Jess, what state should we be living in, brother? Make sure we live in a state of sanctifying grace. Make sure you don't live in a state of mortal sin. Pray a rosary every day. Uh, and uh, thank you very much uh, yeah. for listening to the show. And uh, take it away, Terry. And don't forget Our Lady of Fatima said souls are going to hell because no one's there to pray and sacrifice. God love you.